Welcome to Redemption Hill podcast. For more information about Redemption Hill, go to redemptionshill.com. As I thought about this, here's kind of where my mind went. I have three boys, um, and that kind of shapes your home, uh, and it definitely shapes your conversation. I don't know what a girl house would talk about. I don't know what they do. Um, but my boys, they love to talk um, about cars, uh, from, from Hot Wheels when they're young uh, to, to, to now different cars, but all the times, everything is cars, 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 and they like to process cars with these, uh, which is better or would you rather type questions. You know, when it's Hot Wheels, like this one or this one, Dad, and, and, and now it's a little bit different of processing, and it goes a little bit like this in our house or m- more uh, realistically in our vehicle right now, Judah will see a car that he thinks is awesome, and it'll start the process. Dad, 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 bro, dad, bro, dad, dad, dad. Yeah, dude. Which would you rather have? That awesome Corvette or a Bugatti Chiron? Like, a Bugatti Chiron's $3 million. That's the base model. I mean, a base model at three, three million, like you're not rolling down the windows by hand, but there's a $4 million one. So like, that's the kind of avenue that he's talking in here. He's only seen one on an iPad uh, game that he has and like this cartoonish version of one, but that's his pick. That car that we just passed or a Bugatti Chiron, which would you rather have, dad? I tell him, well, I'll take that Bugatti Chiron, son, and I will sell that thing immediately. I'll pay off everything I ever needed to. I will buy some other really cool stuff, and we'll go on vacation. Maybe we'll get a babysitter, and you'll stay. (laughs) Which Jude will say, no, Dad, no. Like, which would you rather have? I'd rather have that and sell it. No, which would you rather have and keep? Okay, well, the boy doesn't understand. He's playing checkers, and I'm, I'm playing chess. Like, I'm making, I'm making moves, but this qualitative kind of comparison it's, it's normal for people. It isn't just boys. It isn't just my family. We do it all the time with kind of trivial what-if scenarios, but then we kind of do it with really big things too. We're kind of doing these what-if type scenario, pros and cons, weighing things out. Well, the Old Testament does this as well all the time like all over the place. And and what it will do is it's going to put these comparisons together to show us the path of obedience and wisdom in a life that wants to follow Lord. So it's going to put two things together and say, hey, compare these, do do a which is better, would you rather type scenario. And it's going to bring you to a path or a decision of what it looks like to follow uh, the Lord. So Samuel in the Old Testament, when he wanted to show the people of God uh, that, that to love God is much more important than to do some robotic motions of religion that you just kind of do and you don't even know why. When he wanted to do this, he, he put these together. Okay, to obey is better than uh, to, to sacrifice, to, to love the Lord, to know the Lord, to follow the Lord is, is better than doing a couple of like ritualistic things that you feel like you've always had to do. There's a whole lot more in the Old Testament. Better is one day in your courts than a thousand elsewhere. The presence of God is better than any other place that you're going uh, to be. Uh, it is better to trust the Lord than to put confidence in, in man. And then if you've read that this one is in there, it is better to live in a desert than with a quarrelsome and fretful woman. I did not write that, but it is the Bible, and I do not disagree with that. Why are we bringing these up? Well, chapter 4 is full of them. Comparisons 
And friends, these comparisons uh, or which is better are, are meant to lead you to a place where you have a decision, will I trust the Lord or will I not? He's going to put some, some comparisons together. This is the teacher or Solomon to try and show you a path that is not vanity, that won't slip out of your fingers like vapor, it won't disappear and leave you without any eternal realities. Um, the comparison started last week when he said it's better to live with a handful of quiet than, than two handfuls of striving after the wind. This was about ambition and drive and pleasure and seeking more in the, uh, the, the world. And the kind of understanding here is to have no hands full of toil, to have no drive for accomplishments or getting even the gifts of the Lord is to be a lazy scoffer. And this is a terrible and sinful way to live. But to chase after uh, with, with two fistful to try and get as much as you can of striving after the wind is also a sinful choice. Uh, this is the person who's driven by accomplishments or pleasure or just not satisfied with what they have. It, it doesn't matter. You can be poor or rich and still be the guy who thinks they need more, more stuff, more money, more, more, more sex, more experiences, more free time. You just can't slow down to enjoy the gifts of God because your heart's always wanting the next thing or more things. The appetite that you have drives you and it will not ever let you slow down or sit down. But a person with, with one handful of quiet and one handful of toil, they have a balanced life. A healthy life that's balancing ambition and desire. This person has a life that, that involves, remember we were talking about time and seasons, their life allows them to kind of live in and have margin. It has room. Room for what? Room for Sabbath. Room for worship. Room and time for generosity instead of just grabbing two hands full of, of, of your toil. Room for community, room for enjoyment. Enough drive in this balance for you. You have enough drive to go get some cool things in the world, but not so much that you don't have the margin to enjoy them or worship God with them. This text, the latter part of chapter four, is gonna continue on with these comparisons, but it's gonna angle in at adding the, the dimension of, of relationships or life together with this toiling after more in the world. And the idea is going to be a life together is better than a life alone. And that's not meant to be just some pragmatic thing that a guy with a TED talk that doesn't believe in God could say. Our communal God has invited us into community with him and each other. It's better to live out of that than to reject the way that God has wired you. This is what he's trying to, to show you. A couple things before we dive back into the text that, that you really have to understand here. I probably should have mentioned them earlier, but Ecclesiastes is what we consider wisdom literature. So you're going to understand wisdom from the Lord or what it looks like to follow the Lord through it. But this is specifically written in, in the genre of, of poetry. That means that this is technically wisdom poetry. Why does that matter? Well, you don't read poetry like you read everything else. Some of you are like, I don't read poetry at all. Okay, that's fine. But if you did, you wouldn't read it like other things. You're not going to read poetry like a textbook. And you're not going to read poetry like a fiction novel that you enjoy. And you're definitely not going to read poetry like an instruction manual. Those are, are generally for information digestion or a kind of quick one-pass type of, of entertainment. You're not trying to make connections about meanings and think over it. You, you just kind of go through. But poetry is meant to be read slowly and thought about and prodded. What you do with poetry is you kind of turn the phrases to try and understand like puzzle pieces. How does this fit into what the, the writer is trying to, to tell me? There's a lot of metaphor in this. 
a lot of figurative language. The gist is poetry is not about speed or volume of intake. It's about wrestling with the content to see what you can glean from it. The language will not always be concrete and literal. If, if you believe everything is concrete in this, this is going to be plastic and weird to like, I don't really get it on the far side. We have to understand the preacher speaking poetically here. Okay, we got to get that. Uh, on a side note, before we dig into it, in the comparisons, if you ever want to jack up a young kid with a game of comparisons, put a which is better impossible choice in front of them. We, we did this at night for quite a while. They would want to do the what is better uh, questions at our house. So I'd lay down with Judah and Abel, and this is what I'd love to do with them. Would you rather have a Lamborghini? Like, ooh, bedazzled in pink. Or a beater van to drive on your first date. Caveat, you can't sell it and you can't paint it. Dad! Right? They, they couldn't hardly deal with it. It's fun to put a lockup question on a young kid. Maybe I'm messed up, but it's hilarious. Um, the verses, back to this. Maybe that wasn't helpful, but I thought it was funny. Um, he starts out again, I looked under the sun. Remember, he, he's brave enough to look around. And another thing that I saw was vanity, was fleeting, was, was vapor. I saw a person who has no other, either son or brother. Now, now here's the first one. This, remember, poetry, not rigid instruction manual. The teacher is painting a picture of, of not just, I saw one guy on the face of the earth. He's painting a picture of a, of a type of person who's alone. When it says they had no son or no brother, uh, this doesn't mean uh, per se he didn't have just a biological child or a biological brother. He's pointing at a person who structured their life in such a way to where they do not have children on purpose as a choice and they do not have a brother, a, a close relationship or a true, deep, long-lasting friendship. They don't have either of these things on purpose. They live kind of like a, an island. They're doing their own thing, unencumbered by other people, not hindered or tied down uh, by, by relationships, by weight, by, by dealing with things that they don't want to. This is type, the kind of, kind of uh, lone ranger type of person, right? So this isn't about marriage or singleness. It's about a way of life that won't allow itself to be distracted or slowed down from getting your two hands full of toil by other people. Hey, you'd slow me down. I don't have time for that. Now, why are they living without family or relationships? Why are they running solo? The, the preacher uh, tells us. It says, well, there's no end to all of their, their, their toil. Their work has no end. Their chasing of the wind has no end. This is a life that is never satisfied, so it can't stop chasing more and more and more. Every time they look around the world, they, they see something else that they need, something else that they want. So for this person, the world isn't a place of beauty made to, to kind of behold and enjoy and savor and worship through. The, the world is just an arena where you're fighting everybody else to get more stuff than they do before you die. This is that person. Yet the more this person gets, the more they want. It's like taking a drink and getting thirstier. This is them. Riches haven't worked all the world has to offer hasn't satisfied them. They can't get off the cycle of getting the next thing and the next thing. And we're, we're meant to, though this is poetical, we're, we're meant to kind of feel the weight of this. The preacher's pointing to how a life of vanity actually mirrors insanity. This thing will make me happy. Nope. This thing. 
chase harder. Okay, this thing faster, this thing faster. No, over, and what's the definition of insanity? The same thing over and over and over. This pursuit of vanity is insanity. And the point is that people can't stop. I gotta get this, and I gotta get this, I gotta get this, and it'll never end. You can never stop. Now notice the result of the unencumbered life. That can chase what it wants. No restrictions, no relational responsibilities, no kids to slow me down, no, no friends to, to go kind of help them in their time of need. Surely that person has the world by the tail and they're going to have just a great life, right? It says, no, these things actually have them by the tail. They're inside out so much so that they never actually ask the question, why am I doing this? I love that he puts that in there. They're never asking, why do I reach for more? Why do I strive for more? Why am I working so hard when all this work hasn't actually given me what I want? A lot of people will say, well, I'm working for my family, right? They'll try and put this responsible looking tone around. I'm I'm working for my family, trying to give them a better life, give them better things. I'm, I'm, I'm trying to set them up. Well, this person isn't working for their family. They don't have time for family. They're just working for themselves. So the preacher poses the question, if you're not doing all this, if it hasn't made you happy, and you're not doing all of this to share it with someone or give it to someone as a legacy at some point, then what in the world are you doing? Because this toil hasn't brought you any pleasure and it's actually stealing it from you. You're working to get more, though more never satisfies you. And that desperation for more isn't helping you. It's actually leaving joy on the table. You catch what he's saying? You're going after something that that doesn't help you in a belief that that's going to make you happier. And your desperate pursuit for more is actually stealing joy on the table for you right now. You have peace and pleasure and relationships. And yes, this is a broken world, friends, that the Lord has spoken into. But there's some gifts of beauty available. And he goes, you're so desperately chasing things that aren't working that you're leaving beauty on the table. This is vanity, and he says of this, it's an unhappy business. He's trying to show you the sadness, like it is horrifically sad to people walk, see them walk through this. It's a tragedy. It's meant to cause you to, you're supposed to put flesh on this. This is a son or daughter who can't stop. They're addicted, and what they chase in their addiction doesn't actually help them, and yet like an addiction, they can't quit. They can't get clean. They can't get free. The more they reach, the worse it gets. And now not only have they reached more and more and more to this point of addiction that's out of control, now they're out of control and they're alone, unsatisfied, without peace, struggling and suffering alone because they pushed away what they once called burdens, but now they realize those were actually meaningful relationships. The the gift of one another they didn't have time for, and now Now they're completely alone. This first example, it isn't a fringe person or outlier in our culture. This is what we have to understand. This is by and large the West. Not a portion of the West. This is is the American dream. This is what water we swim in. Think about just looking around and the way people's lives are actually kind of set up to do this. Everyone has privacy fences and doesn't know their neighbor. Why? Because they don't have time for that. You ask a ton of people in the world, hey, do you have a real friend? Like you get them in an honest time. Not, not a guy who will go drink with you or go to a game. Do you have a real friend? One that'll celebrate your victories and, and slow down to weep in your defeats. And a lot of people say, no, I don't have that. I, I, I don't like to think about it. Man, I feel epically alone. 
I don't even know that anybody knows who I really am, how I feel, or what's important to me. I'm just, I don't know, I'm alone. And then look at the countless gathering spaces and culture that have all closed down. People used to go bowling for friendships and, and, and stuff that they were doing. There was, there was civic groups. There was all of these things that people went to go meet and be around people. And all of those spaces are empty and about gone. Why? Culture has grown to prefer riches over relationships. There's one line that would sum up this text. That's it. We, per, we prefer stuff, which is vanity, to, to people, which is not. There are many people who have said, well, Christianity is just dying. The church is dying because uh, members or people who attend or, or join in for corporate worship are vastly lower than it used to be. So ipso facto, Christianity is a dying construct. It's on its last leg and, and we're moving past it. But what if churches attended less is partly a matter of the culture? What if it's just another symptom of a world that doesn't actually value being around other people? And that trickles into the body of Christ and public worship. Why? Because the mentality is, man, church and people in church and community and missional community and life together. I could get a whole lot more toil if I didn't deal with that. Sunday fun day, man. And I could do a whole lot of, you kind of catching this? These are choices you have to, to make. So what have people done? If they still want to follow Jesus and they haven't exited, they've kind of gone, well, I'm just going to follow Jesus alone, which is not following Jesus at all. Then look at the average age of people getting married in our day and the average age of them having children. Even more so, look at the average amount of kids that people are having compared to 50 years ago. And then the massive amount of people. We know a ton of people who are like, man, careers, college is expensive. I want nice stuff. I'd like a better house. Like I just got a boat. I don't have time for kids at all. Cause me to slow down. I can get more toil without any of that stuff. We are an entire culture that looks exactly like this example. And what does he say? It's an unhappy affair. Are we happy? Is culture happy? I don't think so. We've perceived people as dead weight to give us a, a better picture of redemption and it's left us more alone and angry and the Bible's going, hey man, I told you about this. I told you about this. The preacher is bouncing back into the two handfuls of toil mentality, showing how to leave a person unsatisfied and unable to kind of rest and enjoy. An unsatisfied heart cannot slow down and does not have time for people. An unsatisfied heart does not have time for deep relationships. One of the things that I, I keep trying to bring to people's attention is relationships take time. They're not an amenity that can be given to you. You want it, you invest in it. And if you don't invest in it, you don't want it. That, that's the way it goes. People are like, man, I just don't have time for it. Then you can expect not to have any good friends. The preacher drives into a little number play. Last week he goes, okay, zero is dumb, but one uh, is better than two when it comes to, to trouble. One is greater than two. But then he shifts, okay. But two is better than one when it comes to relationships. Oh yeah, yeah, and three is better than two, which is still better than one. His thesis for why two is better is there will be a good reward for their toil. He isn't saying, hey man, if you tag team life with another person who wants two hands full of toil, you can get more if you chase together. That's not his kind of line. His, his uh 
The toil is better as an amount of reward. Your life and what you get with others is better than what you will get alone. Not more, not more riches, not more vacations and more stuff. The outcome of being with others is better than the outcome of being alone. Imagine you're an avid golfer. We don't have any of those here. Right? But imagine you hit a hole in one. And I'm not talking like a dinky pitching wedge hole in one. I'm talking like 270. You went for it and it went in the hole in one. Over water, turn, trees, the whole deal. It was a thing of beauty. And you did it by yourself. Nobody to fist bump. You didn't Instagram it. How awesome is that? You're like, kind of awesome. Yeah, I don't was awesome for three seconds and like, oh. Imagine your team winning the championship as you cheered at an empty stadium. Imagine, I put this back into the church world, um, imagine the celebration of, of baptisms with no one watching. In fact, no one's even there. You just kind of threw yourself in the water and said, I hope that works. You're just by yourself. Imagine getting married with no witnesses. Maybe the, maybe the, the, the justice of the peace actually zoomed in. Nobody was there. Nobody could see it. There's no sending. Like, okay, I guess I just hit end now. Or maybe on the the harder side, imagine losing your mother or father and there's no one to be there with you. The, The point is there are things in life that are not meant to be done alone. And you and I both know it. They don't feel right alone. Why? Because you're not supposed to do them alone. For my cynical brothers and sisters who say, yeah, yeah, okay, prove it. The preacher says, okay, I will. I'm going to give you three different ways that alone is not better, where one is not better than two relationally, even though you're chasing your two handfuls of toil. The first he gives is, is, and he's going to play with these numbers again. If you're looking at the text, you'll kind of be able to see it. He goes, if one man falls and another one is there to pick him up, that's, that's kind of a good deal. But if one man falls and then they're just alone, there's nobody to lift them up. And he goes, woe to you who this is the case. He's not talking about just tripping and falling if you're following me. This is not a biblical ad for life alert. Help me, I've fallen and I can't get up. Like that's not what's going on here. This is metaphorical, right? This is poetry. The question is when life hits you in between the eyes, when you are down, when you are hurting, when emotionally or spiritually or physically you're down or you're hurting or things are hard, when, you, when you're down on the ground, what happens in that season when you look around for someone to lift you up, but you've pushed them all away so you're alone? The preacher says, woe to you when this happens. And this isn't like, whoa, that's amazing. This is like, whoa, this is a lament and a tragedy. Thank you. I'm not alone. It's a warning, offloading people in relationships so that you can run faster is a really stupid thing to do. Hear me, it sounds great in theory. I can do so much cool stuff. But it doesn't play out that way. Then he says, if two lie together, they can keep warm. Again, this is metaphorical. This is not just about a body next to you in a cold, brisk night. Think of the emotions of life, joy, and laughter, and love, and appreciation, and excitement. These are the emotions that kind of warm your soul. They bring meaning to life. They fill you up. They are, they are good. Who laughs hysterically by themselves that is sane? Who loves just themselves or appreciates just themselves? Some of us are like, I know a lot of people who do that. 
who gets deep joy completely alone? And the answer is supposed to be, those are not meant to be emotions you do by yourself. How do you experience the good stuff of life if there's no one there to smile and be like, that was so good, and thank the Lord with? Again, this is not about singleness as far as not being married. This is about a choice to offload relationships in order to be quick and be able to move and be able to do what you want. It's a life that prioritizes work and other things instead of investing in people, and and, and now you're kind of dealing with that. The last kind of parable is over protection prevailing and persevering. Alone, you may be able to persevere or withstand an attack or a fight, but if there's two people, there's no doubt that you're going to come out in a good spot. Again, metaphor, poetry, parable. When battles and struggles and challenges come in your life, alone, maybe, maybe, maybe you ducked and moved and you got through a couple of them. One's going to blast you and it's going to knock you down, though. One's going to come, but with others, you can definitely prevail and withstand. This is cutting deep into the heart of what we call rugged individualism. It is the belief that is the air we breathe, that you can and should stand alone and do you. You're strong enough to be self-sufficient and autonomous. You can do what you want. You don't need other people. The preacher is just kind enough to go, yeah, yeah, can I just tell you that doesn't actually work though? We are weaker alone. This isn't a personality profile. You're like, well, that person's weaker alone, but not this guy. That's not the way it is. You may be able to persevere and get through some things by yourself, but you will not get through as much as you would if you were with others. Standing alone, you will not be as strong as if you're with other people. Again, the picture is investing in relationships or or offloading that seems like a solid plan. Casting off the weight of of people seems like a, a great plan to go chase your dreams and be fluid and get to do what you want. But what about when danger or need come? I love Solomon's brilliant, brilliant nugget at the end of verse 12. He drops on us. Oh, and a threefold cord. It's not quickly broken. To which you may say, hey, man, I thought we were talking about two people. I thought we were talking about a relationship, one person and another person. We were, but then Solomon drops on us. Hey, two is better than one in life, but you know what is better than two? Three. Poetry again, what's he talking about? This isn't just you and your bestie. This is actually about community. You and people, not just a person. Left is Life is meant to be walked out with one another's, a group of people. Now, there are many people who preach this section as if it's about marriage. And they'll say, well, marriage helps you when you fall, keeps you warm at night. You can kind of help each other persevere. One's down, the other can pick them up. Yeah, but when it's preached that way, it's like not paying attention to the threefold cord thing, that, that hey, three's better than two, Right? How can this be about marriage and the warmth in bed? Because then the Bible's saying like, hey, you know what's better than two in bed to keep you warm? Three. I don't think it's doing that. And a lot of people or a lot of pastors are like, well, it's talking about God. No, I don't think it's doing that either. As kids or my, my son would say, that's sus. This is about relationships, not marriage. Verse 13. 
Better was a poor and wise youth than an old and foolish king who no longer knew how to take advice. For he went to prison to the throne, though in his, uh, in his own kingdom he had, been, he had been born poor. I saw all the living who move under the sun along with the youth uh, who was to stand in the king's place. There was no end to all the people, all of whom he led, yet those who come later will not rejoice in him. Surely this is all vanity and a striving after the, the wind. Um, a lot of people have argued, hey, is this about King David? Hey, is this about Joseph? And my answer is like, I don't care. Like it's, it, it's about kind of both of them. But I don't think you need to fight over which one this is about in order to understand what he's wanting to say. This is poetry, but it's not hard to understand poetry in this section. He just says it. It's better to be poor and wise than to be an old king who's a fool and won't take advice from anyone. You're better off not to have a lot and be wise than to have a ton and not hear anymore. That's his message here. This fits the opening verses about a person who chases riches. Uh, Is it better to chase stuff to the point where you have tons and tons and tons of stuff, but you've pushed everyone away so much so that you're a fool that you won't hear anything, Is it worth it to climb the mountain of success and fame and wealth and notoriety if at the top you're a foolish man who won't listen to anyone? The answer is meant to be no. It's not worth it. It's not a good investment for your life. Why isn't it worth it? Here's his logic. No matter how high you climb the mountain of success, a day will come when you not only uh, didn't get fulfilled by all the stuff that you got, all that you thought you gained will, will just kind of slip away, but people will forget you and move past even the greatest things that you ever did. He says there'll be a day when, when people won't rejoice over you and know you, right? There was a day, you're the greatest, you're amazing, you're the man. There's a day when people won't know your name. It's gonna just fade. People say, legends never die. Yes, they do, all the time. The greatest of every generation gets forgotten when the people of their generation die as well. Most of those stories don't get passed on. All they grabbed with their, with their two handfuls of toil slips out of their hands and then people don't remember their name. It fades away like smoke. It is vanity. I heard somebody talk about this from stealing his. Um, think about the NBA. When I was young, Michael Jordan was the GOAT. Right? Just amazing to watch. Like He did seem like he was in the air forever and he could just make any shot. He was just the best. He was on Wheaties boxes and Nike and just, he was just everywhere. And then came Kobe Bryant. This guy looked amazing as well. And then came LeBron James. And this guy looks amazing. And now there's somebody new. Each basketball play, player that people swore was the best ever, the greatest ever. They'll be the king forever. They get old their knees give out, they get wrinkly, like LeBron James, his, his hairline's to here now, that's why he wore the headbands, like he can barely play anymore, he's going to get forgotten as well. What's his point? Fame's not going to last. I don't care how famous you are, it's going to go away, just like riches won't. Because of that, both of those things are vanity. They'll disappear on you in a short time, investing in those things while being alone and pushing other people away is not a good idea. What do we do with this? What I kept thinking about this, this morning and, and part of this week is faith in God and faith in Jesus isn't just some figurative facts of I believe that Jesus died on the cross for my sins. Yes, that's extremely necessary. 
Faith is also following God in the ways that the world are not going to. I'll follow you wherever you go. The whole world, I don't care what the world does. I'll follow you wherever you will go. What we do with this is we understand that this is not the narrative of the world. You look weak, you look inept, you look lazy, you look behind the curve. If you're not following and chasing the Joneses and trying to get everything in the world, if you're not getting two hands full of toil, like there must be something wrong with you, the world would say. It doesn't even seem like a question. Everyone wants to get ahead. Everyone's chasing more and better and bigger and nicer and newer. Our culture is enthralled in upgrading their homes and their cars and their careers. And then hear me, and their friendships and their spouse and their church. Like, I just want better of everything, more amenities, nicer stuff, more fun. We are obsessed with just a little more. Most will not wake up to the fact that the chasing of more will be detrimental to the life that you're called to live and your relationships inside of it. We are largely, as a culture, casting aside community and friendships and church and friends. Some are even casting their own kids to the side to chase things, and some are just putting kids off on purpose. All of these things are being sacrificed on the altar of the God of more. This pursuit, though it promises us happiness, it's ripping our humanity apart. It does not take a a rocket scientist to go, hey guys, it's not working. Like it, it really hasn't done anything good here. I'll go back to the well again, the statement that we've hit like a drum. Our faith is either everything or it's nothing. Our faith is grounded upon the infallible word of God that teaches us that it's not good for man to be alone. And that was not just about marriage. There's a, a marriage element to that, but that's not the only meaning that that, have, that has. It was about relationships. We are wired to need one another in a community. If we sell out to the need for more toil and more stuff and more pleasure and more experience and more vacations and more wealth, just like the world does, we are actively living out a life that that does not have faith, but we're rejecting the words of God in order to do it. Do we understand that? You cannot follow God and, and, and the God of stuff. And sometimes we'll play some mental games. We'll go, okay, you know what? I agree. It's not good for man to be alone. But do you know what's worse? To be broke. You know what's worse? To not retire early. You know what's worse? Not, not, not to have notoriety or climb to the next level or have the next thing or more pleasure or, you know what's worse? Not getting the next house. You know how long I've been in the house that I'm in? You know what's worse? Not having better vacations. Just a little bit more striving after the wind. And so what happens, we make these decisions, you know, that's actually worse. And we sacrifice community out of that decision in order to chase more wind. And then we wonder why we're alone and blame other people for it. That was extra. Maybe I'll say sorry for that later. The preacher's already shown us the pursuit won't end well for a person. They'll be alone when they're down, lonely when they push forward, 
weak when opposition comes and a fool who won't take advice. Not to mention all that they've gathered in their life they can't take with them and all the fame that they may have conjured will be forgotten as the world moves by. The, the author is just showing us, and we feel this in certain times when we're down. We're just like, I just, I just need time to slow down. I just need it to stop. It's not going to stop. Any fame you get, the world's just going to keep moving. This is a bad investment. It's an empty road. It's a sad business that leads to nowhere. And here's the, the teacher's message to you and me. So you don't have to take it. It's part of what living a countercultural life means. I see all of you going that way. We're just not going to do it. My decision is the Lord is better and the gifts that he's given me are better and the people that he's put around me are better. I'm not going that way. What frees a person from an overly driven ambition to get more or have more or do more or be more? Well, it's the same thing that we saw in the text last week can change not only the oppressed, but the oppressor. It's a new heart. A new heart that's satisfied in Christ, work for them and over them, can kind of get off of this rat race of more. It's really that simple. Your sins have been paid in full. Not, not half, not part, in full. The relational fracture that you and I have with God has been repaired completely. So much of the, the God of the universe dances in joy when we come into uh, the, the faith and, and, and loves us. And we're his children. He says, yeah, I'll never let you go. It means, hey, you don't have to use people anymore to get more stuff because you don't need all that anymore. You got to actually enjoy them. It means the Lord has taught you to be grateful for what you have. Because of that, even if you have just a little bit now, even if you're like, man, my pockets are empty. Like, I'd really like a little bit nicer house. Not asking for a mansion, you know that your eternity will be full. You're free to enjoy the life that you have as a child of God, knowing that there's an inheritance coming. So you're no longer a slave to fear, just like you're not a slave to your sin anymore. This is kind of the beautiful part. It's not just, what am I saved from? You're saved to something, a life that doesn't have to desperately chase things like everyone else. You can exhale. You can slow down enough to worship. Hey, you can laugh. You can relax. You can have a vacation, and you can, you can actually have some ambition to get some nice stuff in the world but it doesn't own you. The preacher is showing us that God hasn't come to steal our humanity. This is the thing that, man, I wish my heart and yours could grasp a hold of. The Lord is fighting hard to restore your humanity, not take it from you. Every time when you feel like it's the opposite, that's the enemy's voice in your ear. He's proved this by sending Jesus to, to redeem you and to draw you to where you can slow down and have margin to enjoy the creation and the deep relationships that you have now, knowing that even in the brokenness of the world, Christ will return, fix it all, and wipe away any, any tears and you kind of brush off the dust that you've accumulated in this space. The question at hand is this type of restored humanity, my reality, becomes the question. Is this the reality I'm living in, or does that just sound like some interesting stuff on a page? Is this a story that my life is actually chasing or am I still chasing more and more and more? For some of us, I think that you would probably say, hey, if I'm honest, I'm chasing more. I actually just don't know how to stop. I don't know, like, 
the idea of slowing down, you don't understand, it sounds great. I don't know how to slow down. I don't know how to worship. I don't know how to enjoy God. I think the beauty of that starting place is you can ask him for help with that today while we're kind of wrestling in worship. Lord, help me. I don't, I don't know how to exhale. I don't know how to breathe. Every time I try and slow down, I just feel anxiety. Like everything's tightening. I have to have more. And I don't know how to stop. Holy Spirit's for that. Hey, help me. Questions that may be helpful. Am I content? Not done, not arrived, not I don't want anything else out of life. But has the Lord given me a level of satisfaction that can guide my choices to some degree? There's a whole lot to do with where your money goes and where your time goes. Do I have a level of contentment or down deep inside, am I still just so desperate because I think the next thing or something else is the thing that'll make me happy? The question, if you say that you are a believer, is am I chasing the wind just as much as someone who does not follow Jesus? Can we be brave enough to ask that question? Again, if you don't know how to stop, this is the point where you come to the Lord. Remember, he's trying to restore your humanity, not steal it. Father, help me. I don't know how to slow down. I'm not even sure how to repent is turning. I don't even know how to turn. Will you help me? Give me the gift of repentance so I can stop running. I need some rest. And the Holy Spirit will give that to you. He's a good father. If the Lord's been prodding your heart for a while about this, I mean, don't, don't run out without praying and doing some business with the Lord, especially before you come to the table. This is the moment that maybe he's lined up to go, hey, I've been trying to slow you down for a while. Come to me, all who need rest, all who are heavy laden, I will give you rest for your soul and it'll be okay. Ask the Lord to help you in that. If you want someone to pray with you, ask them. Like there, there's a time that we can walk away when the Lord's going, hey man, I want to do, it. I want to do something in that here. The second question is just basic. Maybe we even ask this kind of in our membership interview. Do you have margin for relationships? Do you have the time to be known and know other people? Has the gospel so permeated your life that where you can be interrupted by people? And even moreover, now you're actually grateful for people. Again, this is an important question, what I was leading into before, because relationships aren't amenities. There's so many people that walk up and, and, and ask me questions, and their, their hearts are heavy, but they just can't see. They're just, give me friends. I, I just don't understand why the church can't give me friends. I can give you a pen with an RH logo. I can give you a T-shirt. I can give you an Ecclesiastes book. I can't give you a friend. You and I have to invest in real people in the real world and not on a computer to make those. So many people weep over not having a relationship when the reality is they just haven't prioritized the margin to create them and that's just, it's a, it's a seed they've sown and yet they're mad about it. What Ecclesiastes does is it gives you a mirror. Hey, here's your life. You wanna look or no? No, I want to blame someone. I want to blame my mom. I want to blame my dad. I want to blame the other. Do you want to look or not? Because the Lord's here to help you with it. Will you look? This is what it wants to do. Some may ask, okay, why does this matter? Why are friendships a Christian thing? Our God is a relational God who's created us and invited us into relationship with him. Sin not only broke our relationship with him, but it broke our relationship with others. See, part of the gift of salvation is a restoration of right relationship with God 
here's the other part. It's a restoration of right relationship between us. God has made a people, a community, a church to live together and worship him and be salt and light to find joy in what we walk through now, knowing that there's even a better day and an inheritance coming, to reject the reconciliation relationally that the God of the universe has given us is to reject the heart of the Father. I just can't say it more simply. You can't be like, me and God are good, just me and God, Jesus in, in, in me, but I just don't need those people. You can keep them. To do that is to reject the Lord. No matter what words you put it or how you dress it up, it's a rejection of him and it's sinful. The Lord's going, hey, come see the gift that I've given you. See your life, see your pace, see your choices and see what I've called you to. Um, one of the things I've had to grow content in in the book of Ecclesiastes is they're just gonna add nuggets of wisdom, right? They're not trying to hit a home run each time. You talked about time and embracing time in the seasons. He's talked about people and relationships and our need for them. And he's, he's going to talk about escaping reality versus living a present life just over and over. He's going, hey, this is the life I've called you to. And each week we go like, hey, do I want to do that or not? And I pray that our hearts will grow and slowly but surely we'll become a, a people of God who are, who, are, who are brave enough to follow him even in things that maybe we were uncomfortable with before. Each day he's just adding an element and the hope is, Lord, will you help me trust you with this one and we help me trust you with this one and we help me trust you with this one. Band, you guys can come back up. We'll take communion like we do every week. And we're remembering as we come to the table, there's only the power and the work of Jesus that allows us to do this. Without the work of Christ, your relationship with God would not be fixed and the ability to be relationally restored with others wouldn't be possible either. So we're coming every day reminding it's your work and not mine that has done this and there's a beautiful plan that you have. Let me take the work that you've given me once again for me. Let me be encouraged by it and let me live it out. That's why we're every week. Remind me of Jesus, remind me of Jesus, remind me, but I failed. That's why I need to remind me of Jesus, remind me of Jesus, then you come and you take 1 Corinthians 11 says this, for I received from the Lord what I also delivered to you. The Lord Jesus, in the night when he was betrayed, he took bread and when he had given thanks, he broke it and he said, this is my body, which is for you. Do this in remembrance of me. In the same way also, he took the cup after supper saying, this cup is the new covenant in my blood. Do this as often as you drink it in remembrance of me for as often as you eat the bread and drink the cup, you proclaim the Lord's death until he comes. Friends, we get to wrestle with this text and the reality of relationships and our need for one another. And whether the Lord has done just an amazing work in us or, or whether you know, we have some hard repenting to do, we get to come to the table. You know, the price has been paid for no matter which situation that you've been in. I pray that your heart would be encouraged in that. And that the spirit would walk close to you and you'd be brave enough to kind of look in the mirror and, and ask him, what's my life actually look like? Considering the the fellow sons and daughters of God that the Lord has placed around me and given me as a good gift to walk in. I pray that we would do that and see Jesus as good and the Lord is restoring and not stealing from us. Would you stand with me and pray?